Good morning. It is good to see you. We, uh, if you're a guest today, uh, we just need to warn you that usually between September and November, uh, every sermon illustration has to do with college football. Um, just kind of, kind of is what it is. And so this morning will be no different. Um, and those of you who don't care about that, don't worry. We'll talk about Jesus in just a second. But yesterday was a great example of why college football is a great thing. Like, it's amazing. For for Texas Tech to be the one school that got a win in the state of Texas, like, it's just weird, man. It's just a weird day. Um, guns up or something, whatever. You can have your moment. <laughs> like, so, so here's the thing. Uh, as a Florida Gator fan, I grieve with the state of Texas. Uh, it's It's tough. Yes, go ahead. The two Kentucky fans that we're going to invoke church discipline on later, we'll deal with that. Um, so last week, the Florida Gators were playing the uh, ridiculously overranked uh, Utah Utes, um, and we expected to lose. It's a rebuilding year for us. Uh, it was this back and forth game? If you watched any of it, at the very last second, we ended up coming back and, and winning. And as we're watching this game in our household, and we're like, "Oh my goodness, I think we might actually have a chance." We didn't expect this. <laughs> Bryson's getting worked up with us, our youngest son, and he says, "I wish this game would end, so I know what I'm going to wear tomorrow." <laughs> so what are you talking about? He goes, well, if we win, I'm wearing my gator gear to church. I'm like, and if we lose, he's like, oh, I don't even wear nothing. <laughs> I mean, Florida gator stuff. Uh, we're not that kind of church. Uh, and I'm like, bro, like, that's, do you know what a fair weather fan is? Do you know what this conversation is? And so we start having this conversation about bandwagon fans, right? All of a sudden people who like hop on, like the three of you who did your little guns up thing. I've never seen you do that in church before. Like, let's be honest. We, we got the win. Now we're talking, right? And, and this thing in us is like, don't be a, ba- a bandwagon fan, right? Don't, don't just hop on the train just because we're winning. The reality is that that's sort of the environment that the tension lies in the text where we find ourselves today. Uh, we kind of stopped last Sunday in the middle of this story in the book of Acts where there's this tension uh, 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 on the part of these, these Jewish believers who have followed the law of Moses to the best of their ability all their lives. And then they were introduced to the gospel of grace and they've been saved. And then all these other non-Jewish people, these Gentiles, they're coming to saving faith in Jesus without having to follow all the law of Moses. And they're like, hey, they're bandwagon fans. Like they're just hopping on the bandwagon of grace without following all the teachings the way that we have. And specifically, this huge debate erupts over just one particular but visible uh, part of the law of Moses, and that's circumcision. And these Jewish believers are like, hey, if they're not going to be circumcised, they're not following this thing enough. They're not really in. They're not really a part of this thing. And that's where the the story has kind of escalated where we left off last week where the Apostle Peter stands up. He says, man, why are we going to put the burden that we ourselves can't really fulfill of the law on these people? 
And that's where we're going to pick up this morning. Grab your Bible. If you don't have a Bible today, there's one underneath the seat in front of you. Uh, and if you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you. Please keep that. Uh, we want you to keep that. But uh, we always have a, a weekly tradition here. We hold up our Bibles and say a creed together before we jump in. Because uh, we think the most important thing that's happening in this room is not what I say. It is what God has to say. And so we want to define where the real authority lies this morning. So let's hold up our Bibles. Let's declare this, declare this with some conviction this morning. The Bible is the word of God. The truth of the Bible will change my life. Lord, open my heart and awaken my mind and give me grace to respond. Change me for your glory and my joy. Amen. Thank you. Turn to Acts chapter 15. It's page 869 if you're using one of those Bibles from the seat in front of you. Acts chapter number 15 we're going to start by reading the, the last verse that we ended with last week because it's just so important that we start, uh, where we left off because man, this is, this is where kind of everything lies for us as the followers of Jesus almost 2000 years after this debate was happening. So we're going to pick up in verse number 11. We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, Peter says, just as they, the Gentiles, will. Not by any works, not by keeping the law, not by our good deeds, not by helping little ladies across the street. We are saved by grace and nothing else. And as the people of God, we reply to that and say, Amen. We are saved only by God's grace, not through anything that we say, do, think, or feel. Because if we try to add to that, it is something less than the gospel. It is it is another gospel that is not a gospel at all. So that's where we pick back up in the story with verse number 12. All the assembly fell silent. Which I can just imagine that, right? Like when he said, it's all about grace. Can't you just imagine that everybody in the room went, oh, that sounds way better than our plan, right? Like, I I like this. We're we're on a good trajectory now. Maybe I'm going to stop contending as much for my view here. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. They basically, apparently, I I wish we had more information here. uh, I guess they started talking about this first missionary journey that we've been studying together uh, since uh, September, uh, middle of August. We've been studying this, this journey, Paul's, uh, Paul's first ever uh, sermon that was recorded, um, his, his incredible encounter where he, he meets this political, powerful ruler in Cyprus named Sergius Paulus, and he's really interested in the story of Jesus, but then he's got this really influential, creepy wizard dude named Bar Jesus, who's trying to bar Jesus from being proclaimed. And the Apostle Paul's like, hey, blindness helped me really see, and so I think you should be blind. And the dude goes blind for a few days. It's this amazing thing. And then we went to the region of Iconium, and he says, many signs and wonders were performed. Like, so much stuff, we can't write it down. Like, God's doing this miraculous stuff. And then we go to the city of Lystra, and just like y'all heard the story about Peter and John going to the temple one afternoon to pray, well, we met this guy who had been crippled his whole life. And man, we speak the name of Jesus over him, and he's instantly healed and jumps to his feet, and it's amazing. And then all of a sudden, things get creepy. All of a sudden, they start worshiping us and calling us 
gods. They start worshiping us as Zeus and Hermes. And they're like, oh, we're going to build a temple to you and sacrifice to you and do all this stuff. And we're like, hey, don't worship us. And they were like, okay, then we're going to kill you. Instantly, they, they try to murder us. They, they drag Paul out from the city and they, they think he's dead. They stone him to the point they're, they're like, yep, he's dead. And they walk away. He eventually wakes up and goes back into the city and keeps proclaiming Jesus. He's telling them these stories. And man, I can just imagine, right? It says they fell silent before they told those stories. How silent would it have been when Paul took a breath? They're like, whoa, right? I mean, apparently somebody was taking notes because we know about all those previous stories. Verse number 13. After they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Those of you who were here in June, you're like, I'm confused. I thought James was executed in Acts chapter 12. It was the last chapter we covered before we took our summer break. That was a different James. That was James, the brother of John. Remember the sons of thunder, part of the, those three, Peter, James, and John, the closest to Jesus. Um, and Herod has him beheaded. He was uh, one of the most powerful or influential martyrs in the early church. He wasn't the first one, but he was definitely the most powerful one to lose his life at the beginning of this thing called Ecclesia. So that's a different James. This James is not the brother of John. This James is the brother of Jesus. How's that for one up in you? <laughs> right? Who are you related to? Jesus, right? <laughs> Which, uh, you've heard me say this before, um, one of the evidences that I believe Jesus did raise from the dead is his siblings worshipped him. Those of you who grew up fighting with your siblings, right? You don't worship a sibling unless you know they rose from the dead, right? Like, clearly he's God. <laughs> And, and James, uh, who is one of the multiple siblings of Jesus, right? There's, there's a faith system that teaches, uh, that Mary was perpetually a virgin. Um, but the word of God teaches that after Jesus was born, uh, her and Joseph had other children together. And, uh, this is one of those, uh, siblings, half siblings of Jesus, James. He's got some pretty cool nicknames. Um, I don't want to chase this, but like he's literally known for 2,000 years as James the Righteous. That's a pretty impressive nickname, right? Um, he, he is the author of the book of James. Um, he's also referred to in church history as James the Camel Need, that his knees got such bad calluses he looked like a camel. Have you ever seen a camel's knees? They're hilarious looking. This guy spent so much time in prayer that he earned the nickname, you're misshapen, because of how much time you spend on your face before God. That's pretty incredible. He is the leader of the early church. Again, there's a faith system that teaches that, that Peter was the early authority, that he actually was the first pope. Uh, when the reality is God's word teaches it was the younger uh, brother of Jesus named James, who was the leader. Like Peter got up and spoke, and Paul and Barnabas get up and spoke, and then James gets up and goes... Okay, here's the deal. And he literally brings the clarity because he's the leader of the early church in Jerusalem. I know that's just a little history and maybe that doesn't matter to you. But it's just important to note he's speaking authoritatively when he stands up and says, enough debate. Let's let's land the plane here. Verse 14. Simon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them 
a people for his name. I want you to see a couple things that he says here right from the beginning. The, the first thing that's worth noting is that he calls Peter by his Jewish name, his Hebrew name, right? Uh, Simon Peter was just named Simon until one day Jesus names him Petra. He's, he's really, his Jewish name is Simon. And it's almost like he's standing up with his offended Jewish brothers who think circumcision needs to be added to salvation. And he's like, hey, don't forget, we're all on the same team. Right? He, he intentionally is one of the few times we've seen him called Simon since that great day where Jesus is like, you're now named Peter. I'm going to build my church on a rock that the gates of hell itself can't prevail against. Wow. It was a big day when Jesus said that and gave him a new nickname. And very seldom is he called Simon since then. And he intentionally refers to his Jewishness to say, we're not enemies in this room. Like what if more believers, when we were debating stuff, somebody just stood up and said, hey, can we just remind ourselves that we're not enemies? We're actually on the same team here. And then he points to this. He says, which he doesn't just call him Simon. He affirms what he had shared, right? He's referring back to what he had shared. But then he says this, the wording is so important. Simon related how God first visited the Gentiles. He doesn't say Simon told us how he went and visited the Gentiles. Do you notice that distinction? Meaning we're all on the same team and God's up to something. We're just following that. Like, we're not trying to get you on our page. We're trying to together find God's page because he's up to something. Like, God's the one who visited the Gentiles. Do you see that distinction? Because that's really important. Any ministry that makes a big deal about the people who are leading the ministry have lost their way. This is the mission of God. We just get to be a part of that. It's all about him. It's by him. It's of him. And it's for him. God visited the Gentiles. And I wonder if any little flesh part of Peter in that moment was like, well, I'm the one who went. And he's like, forget you, dude. God was the one doing the visitation, right? I love it. Because he's saying there's a, there's a plan that God is up to. And then the next thing he says is, is also crucially important. He says, and with this, the, this move of God, the words of the prophets agree. Just as it is written... After this, I'll return. I'll rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. That's a reference, by the way, to the temple of God, right? So again, a Jewish person is like, oh, yeah, rebuild the temple of David. That's what I'm talking about. Yes, right? I'll restore it. Yes, I'll rebuild its ruins. I'll restore it. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. Here's why that's really important. James, in his wisdom, refers to the Hebrewness of Peter. He humanizes the argument. We're on the same team. He reminds them that this is God's work, not our work. And then he quotes God's word. He quotes from Amos chapter 9. Here's what he's saying. And by the way, and I believe this is a framework for all debate and controversy in the church of Jesus Christ. We are on the same team as the children of God. God's up to something and we just want to be on board with what he's doing. And we're going to base our conclusions on what God's word reveals. Amen. 
Not what the most powerful personality says, not what the people who get paid to be on staff say. No, no, no. The authority only comes from the breath of God in his living and active word. Right? That we're aligning with the purposes and plans of God as revealed in his word. Right? Amen? Do we agree with this? I think it's an important distinction. God's been up to something. We want to align with his word. And then here's, man, verse 19. Y'all, verse 19. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Oh, that verse is so, that verse is everything. It is my judgment that circumcision is troubling for people who are turning to God. To which I just want to say, amen. Yes, I'm very glad that we made that judgment. That, that word trouble is this really interesting word in the original language. It's also translated as disturb or harass or annoy. It's a compound word. It's a, a word made up of two words that little, literally mean close by disturb. Like, don't be the believers who encounter someone who's turning to God and say, you want to hear the most annoying sound in the world? Right? right? <laughs> My judgment is we shouldn't do that. Right? Don't poke him in the eye. Don't be a pain in the neck. Right? Literally. My, my, my judgment, James says, is we should not, one, one translation says we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. I love that. If I can put that in, in language that makes sense with my brain, I would say this. Let's be in the business of removing obstacles for the people who are turning to God. You with me? A few weeks ago, we had um, the the rain that was so bad that it flooded the area, right? Um, being here in the, the river bottom area of Fort Worth, we had tremendous flooding down Randall Mill. And so on the way home that afternoon, Randall Mill was closed off. There was barricades. And so I had to go down Cook's Lane to get to my house, right? Some of you had to do the same thing that day. Well, the next morning, as I'm taking the boys to school... I thought, I wonder if it is reopened, right? We left on time early enough that I thought, well, I'll try to go Randall Mill and see if there are barricades, right? And as we come around the bend there on Randall Mill, there was a barricade in the other lane, but there, the barricade in our lane was like over in the grass. And the lady in the minivan in front of me was like, I'm not risking it. And she turned around and I'm like, it's been moved. Let's have some fun. Because you know she's thinking, some East Fort Worth redneck got out and moved this, and I'm not going to trust it in my minivan. Well, I went for it, and I told the boys, if indeed we can't pass, I want to see what it looks like, right? Like, typical kind of dude stupidity of, what's the worst that can happen with my two-wheel drive cart? And so, we went around, by the way, it happened to be dry, everybody lived, all is well. But I... I read this verse and I picture that person who inconvenienced 
themselves that morning to get out of their car, to pick up that barricade, to put it over in the grass so that other people could drive through a way that was safe. And literally, I believe the, I'll say it this way. I want to spend the rest of my earthly days moving the barricade for as many people as I can. Like anything that's not like necessary to block the path, grab the other end of this thing. Let's move it together. Right? But literally, we believe what's on the other end of this path is eternal life. Not an easier way down Randall Mill. Right? Where we all drive 30 miles an hour and no more. There's a path that leads to life here. Why would we allow man-made obstacles to be in the way? And here's the deal. The obstacles that we're talking about are preferences. I want to die to as many preferences as I have the ability for grace to slay in me so that other people who are turning to God can find him and not my preferences in the way. Right? The, the idea of I want to find a church that fits all of my needs is I believe opposite of Acts chapter 15. It's not about me. It's not about checking off all the boxes of my preferences. Those of us who've been walking with Jesus for a long time, we tend to get more entrenched in our preferences. When literally I believe a mark of maturing in Jesus is that we're dying to our preferences. That that we're honoring those who are just turning to faith and we're like, hey, how can I help... Man, I, I'm not just going to move obstacles. Let's, let's put down some new asphalt. Let's like mark the road. Let's put some red carpet down. What can we do? We want you to meet Jesus. And, and literally, I, I believe that, that when we start looking at the decisions and the routine even of our existence, and we start thinking, what can I do today to remove an obstacle? When I walk across this campus and I see trash being up here on this hill, this is like a magical wind tunnel in the Metroplex. It's just always blowing garbage around here. When I see a piece of trash and I stop and pick it up, that's not just because I'm OCD. It's not just, thank you. I knew the letters. I didn't need your help. (laughs) That's not just because trash bothers me. I believe that other people who are wired like me would pull onto this hill and go, y'all are not. Concerned enough to even pick up trash and yet you want me to follow you towards life? Literally, a, a dirty restroom can be an obstacle to the gospel. So it's not about, well, cleanliness is next to godliness. That's not a proverb, although I wish it were. But it's not in the Bible. It's literally, that could be an obstacle. Why would we not remove it? Right? The reason it's important to us that, that our children's ministries are properly staffed with volunteers because we don't want a person to walk in this place and go, you don't even care enough to watch my kid. The reason it's important that somebody's looked in the eye and, and told good morning when they get here is not because we're about to introduce them to a pyramid scheme where we get commissioned based on how many people turn to Jesus. The thought of somebody leaving here and saying, I didn't feel wanted or welcomed. Why would we let that be an obstacle to literally what is life and death. There's a guy who's a, a part of the, the last generation of our, of our movement who said, I would do anything to keep a man out of hell. And what, what does it take? What, what can we do? 
if we are in the life and death business, then no secondary issues, not even my personal preferences, should become a barrier or an obstacle to those who are being drawn to Jesus. Say amen, church. Tell me you're with me. I want to, I want to say it again, I want to spend the rest of my life finding obstacles that can be removed. And I've been in the church so long, I don't even know what obstacles exist for those who are just now turning to God. That means I got to be a lifelong student of the culture that God's placed me in. And I'm just telling you, there's nothing that is non-doctrinal that's off the table to be discussed in my world. There's nothing. I'm willing to have any conversation about any preference if it helps a person come to faith in Jesus. Do you, do you believe me? Do you hear me? Do you agree with me? Yes. I, I, like, let's have the conversation. What's it mean? If our culture starts saying, no, we believe that symphonies would, would attract us to listen to the story of Jesus, then everybody start tuning up your violins. Let's go. Right? Let's, let's, let's see if we can find that organ that we sold 20 years ago, buy it back. Let's go. I don't care. Literally, if, if, if we reach a place that people are like, no, I think people should dress up to go to church. I will get all of my suits back out of the closet and get them dry cleaned and expanded. And we will go back to shirt and tie sun. I don't care. I could care less. It means nothing to me. Like my preferences don't deserve a seat on the bus on the conversation of how can we introduce people to the life-saving truth of Jesus Christ. What do we need to change? Okay. I don't, like, I don't, oh, God, please help me. I don't want my preferences to ever stand in the way of somebody coming into eternal life. And that's essentially what's being said here. Even good things, even something as important to a Jewish person is circumcision. But the story cannot end there. If they said, let's not trouble the Gentiles who are turning to God. If, if, if he ended his speech there, that is the pathway to apostasy. I'm so glad he kept talking. Cause he says, but my judgment is that we should write to them to abstain from some things. So th- that's not a, hey, nothing matters. We're just trying to reach people with the gospel. What gospel? <laughs> right? He says, no, 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 there's a couple things that matter. And then he does not mention the things that 2,020 Americans would expect him to mention. They should abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. And we go, huh? I was with you about the obstacle removal. I'm confused by this. It's not as complicated as it looks. We just got to get in Bill and Ted's excellent uh, adventure little phone booth and go back a little bit and get the setting. The common practice of this time is that, that there was rampant pagan worship. And when I say pagan worship, I mean stuff that as Americans we can't fathom. I'm talking evil, wicked, worship of Satan kind of stuff. And they would sacrifice animals on these pagan altars 
And then they would take the cooked meat and that pagan temple would have a little butcher shop out front. Right? Come to Beelzebub's butcher shop. Everything must go. Right? They're selling the devil's barbecue. Right? And, and, and what he's saying is, hey, literally, that's, you're consuming something that's been a part of evil worship. Like, there's no gray area here. <laughs> like, you might get a discount on that brisket, but if it was smoked for the devil, let's not. And the Apostle Paul actually would later say, when somebody invites you to eat, don't ask them where they got it from. So then it won't become an obstacle. Unless your spirit instantly is like, don't eat this meat. And then don't, whatever, but just don't even bother asking. That's the same um, realm that this idea of animals that have been strangled and, and, and consuming blood, right? That's not a reference to twilight. Um, that's, that's a reference to this pagan worship. The stuff that's obviously wicked and evil, abstain from that. So we are removing obstacles, this, hear me, but not the ones that offend Jesus, Right? So we don't want to offend people, but we're way more concerned about offending God. Does that make sense? So that means that there are some obstacles for people who are turning from God. Like when he says leave the obstacle, let's not make that more complicated by adding our obstacles to the obstacles. And what I would say in 2022 is... Our message is already countercultural enough. Why would we complicate it by adding in our preferences and man-made rules? Because the other thing he mentions, this category of pagan worship, right? Blatant evil. And then he says sexual immorality. And here's the deal. I want you to hear this. Biblical sexual ethics still matter to God and are a barrier from some people who might be finding their way to God. And, and the reason the rest of this text is important is I think God's saying, hey, remove every obstacle you possibly can for people to come to me because there's already obstacles that are going to already make it difficult. And that's not just in our generation. In this day, sexual immorality was the accepted practice, as a matter of fact, as a part of pagan worship in many cases. The fact that we have said we will not move the needle from what God says about sexual ethics already creates a barrier for people. So why would I then put a man-made dress code on it and how you have to worship and what you have to wear and don't you have a tattoo because that won't ever make it to heaven. That piece of you will just stay right here. Like all the ridiculous things that we heard growing up, like you can only watch PG movies. Well, well the old PG movies have the F word in it. Like, oh, well, not the old ones. Jesus said it from anything from 1998 on. Like, we have all these man-made rules. Listen, our message is already tough enough, guys. Why are we putting all these other things? And I'm just going to tell you, I'm, I'm going to repeat this. I want to spend the rest of my life Removing obstacles for people to come to Jesus. But by God's grace, I will not compromise truth to do so. And both sides of that statement have to be said if we're going to truly honor him. I want to honor people by not putting my preferences as some kind of voodoo trip on them. Right? 
But man, I don't want to dishonor the Lord. Uh, real quick, I don't, I don't have time for this. Real quick, let me say this. For almost 2,000 years, theologians, Christian theologians have agreed that there seems to be different categories of the law. Right? This is all about how much of the law of Moses are, are we bound to. There, and, and sometimes we have to force these categories because God did not speak them in these categories. But there clearly are like civic laws like governmental laws that apply to the nation of Israel, like the infrastructure of the civic function of Israel. And some of those laws are ceremonial laws about how Hebrew worship was supposed to happen. There's another category of laws that we call the moral law of God. The the categories of, of God's law that have to do with sexual ethics, the value of human life, the way we treat our neighbor. And what we believe is that God has set his people free from the bondage of civic law and ceremonial law, although there's a whole lot we can learn from it. But we believe God still intends for humanity to operate under his moral law. He's repeated much of his moral law in the New Testament, in the New Covenant of Grace. And so he mentions sexual immorality, but I think that also includes, by the way, like lying and stealing and coveting, right? Uh, He he mentions specifically sexual immorality because of the rampant sexual sin of that culture in that time. One of the the criticisms that we get is you Christians are such hypocrites. You, You put your sexual ethics on us, which we don't. I don't. I don't, I don't expect a person who doesn't follow Jesus to agree with my sexual ethics. I'm not offended by their sexual ethics. Like, I, I'm not out to tell an unbeliever how they should believe like me. But if I'm asked my opinion, or if I'm preaching and teaching God's view on sexual ethics, I'm going to seek to honor God in that. Right? If God has an opinion, it matters to me. And, and if that reality is offensive to someone... That's an obstacle I can't remove for them. Right? You tracking with me? One of the criticisms is, man, you're inconsistent because you believe in God's sexual ethics, but you don't follow those dietary restrictions. You eat shrimp. And you today are violating God's laws on fabric. Right? You are, you're compromising the book of Leviticus. You are inconsistent. I love what Tim Keller said about that. He said, we are not inconsistent. We believe we are under the authority of the Bible until that authority tells us that that part is no longer binding to us. We aren't picking and choosing. In setting aside dietary and ceremonial restrictions, we're setting aside what the Bible tells us to set aside. So actually, it's incredibly consistent This is the authority. And when it says, you're not bound by that anymore, we say, yes, sir. And when it says that still applies, we hope that we say, yes, sir. It's incredibly consistent. And so we want to remove every obstacle that we can when it comes to preference. We're going to talk more about that next week because I want to unpack that conversation a little bit broader. But I also want to mention verse 21 and then... We're going to transition into a different idea here. He says, from, from, from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him. 
He's read every Sabbath in the synagogues. And, and what he's saying is the reason that we're not blatantly participating in pagan worship and in sexual immorality is there's a common understanding of the law of God. People know that the law of Moses has a moral code to it. And so if in the name of Jesus we are defying his moral code, we've actually lost our credibility in that city. Does that make sense? We want to be in the business of removing obstacles, man-made obstacles, so that people can turn to God. I'm really glad that the obstacle of circumcision was removed for ecclesia, right? Because the rest of that verse should say, and then all the men signed up for the new members luncheon. One of the things you're going to hear more about in the coming months here at Temple Christian School is something called the Providence Program, where we're seeking to remove an obstacle for families in our city that's called generational poverty. We're seeking to remove that obstacle so that they might be able to turn to God. The reason that for all these years we've had a ministry in Nigeria called A Place of Hope Africa is because we believe that fatherlessness, being orphaned, is an obstacle. And we can't remove that obstacle for the whole world. We're just not that big of a deal. But if we can remove it for one child, then we want to remove that obstacle. The reason we partner with Mana Worldwide all over the world is we want to remove the obstacle of a, a hungry belly from hearing the gospel of Jesus. Right? The reason we partner with Mid-Cities Women's Clinic is we want to remove the obstacle of 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 hopeless despair from an unexpected pregnancy. That, that obstacle of I have no options, we think we can come alongside a young lady and help remove that obstacle. That's why we partner with that ministry. But I want to talk to you about a different obstacle this morning that I want us to be on mission to help remove. Back in May... I introduced you to a friend of mine named Matthew. I don't pretend to think that everybody remembers everything I say, and so I want to reintroduce him today. And if you actually remember him really well, just pretend that this is for everybody else. Uh, if you remember, I told you Matthew has uh, a cool spelling of his name. It's I-E-U. Matthew is a young man who grew up in a small village in Haiti. And Matthew's story, quick, quick reminder, Matthew... Uh, Matthew's mother died in childbirth. At a very young age, his father then died. He was orphaned. And so the way that that Haitian culture works is essentially that child's supposed to be adopted by the village if there's not family. The village rejected him. They did not want him. His nickname, I'm just curious. Does anybody remember what I told you he was called? Anybody remember? Ugly. His name, so I told you, you know, James is called the righteous, right? That's quite a nickname. Literally, for the first decade and a half of his life, he was not called Matthew. He was called ugly. The least creative insult I've ever heard in my life. He was such a burden to the village that they asked the local fishermen to take him with them when they went out 
to go fishing and they asked him to throw him overboard and drown him. They agreed to do so. And as they took him out on the boat that day, they realized, time out, we could probably sell him in Port-au-Prince. So they went into the city, they went to Port-au-Prince and tried to sell him on the streets. And because he was scrawny and little, they couldn't even sell him. Nobody wanted him even to be sold. So they just left him. They left him on the streets. And what happens to young people in Port-au-Prince when they are left on the street happened to Matthew. He ended up being forced into a gang. For the first time in his life, he experienced connection in that gang. But of course, he also experienced despair. And then a friend of ours named Lenny Funteca. Lenny is a missionary from the Philippines who lives in Port-au-Prince. Lenny met young Matthew as a teenager, introduced him to the saving grace of Jesus Christ, and Matthew was born again. Quickly, Matthew realized, man, this gospel that has saved me is not just for me. I want to spend the rest of my life telling people about Jesus. And he went to the seminary there in Lenny's ministry, trained for ministry, and started serving there at a church in Haiti until the unrest was so bad. He and a group of his friends fled as refugees across the border to the other side of the island to the Dominican Republic. We've been talking this year about what God is doing in this network of him and four other pastors, we call it Project New Jerusalem. Kind of the mothership of this effort is a Haitian refugee village in the Dominican called New Jerusalem. God's doing an incredible work there. But Matthew and his wife live in a, a village called Gera. G-U-E-R-R-A. Gera. They they live actually kind of on the outskirts of this village. It's the closest they could get to it. And they live in, quite frankly, a shack. And they are so full of joy and so full of Jesus. Matthew and his wife and their two kids are serving the Lord in the village of Gera. This year, in 2022, Matthew has led dozens of people in that village to saving faith in Jesus. And he has baptized 20 people. Yeah. Their little church is growing like crazy. They currently have 60 children attending their church. And they have 50 adults in attendance in this new young church. But we're talking about removing obstacles, right? Their little congregation has an obstacle. It's called a meeting space. I want you to see where this church of 110 is currently meeting. That's the whole picture, by the way. There's not another picture where I show you the rest of it. No, just that lean to you right on the other side of my brother Greg's big bald head is a wall. There's a little house next to this where a lady who's a believer said, you can use this space. It's right on the main road. And when it rains, which it rains every day in the Dominican, mud just washes on this dirt ground. And there are 60 children and 50 adults this morning worshiping Jesus in that little space. Back in May, me and my brother and Pastor Brian Loveless from Calvary Baptist Church in Grand Prairie and a friend of ours who pastors in Florida, we were 
in the Dominican. And Matthew was telling us how excited he was that they had a place to meet. So we met him and his wife at their little shack, and they spent every penny they had to go buy us Gatorade to give us something to drink when we got there. And then we drove into the village, and he took us to this place. You can see him with great joy. He's all in it. I couldn't get a still picture of him talking because his arms were just going everywhere, excited to tell us about this place. He never asked for anything. And inside of me, I'm like, this is not, no. There, there has to be something with more space. And so we asked Matthew, is there nowhere in the village that we could rent that would have more space? He said, oh, we can't afford to rent anything. She's letting us stay here for free. And I said, that didn't answer my question. There has to be something here. And he says, I only know of one building. It's on the main road in the village. So in most Dominican villages, there's not a town hall at the center of the village. There's a baseball diamond. Because baseball is what it's all about in the Dominican. Well, there's a little half-built shop right on the main road that faces the town's baseball diamond. Behind that is a half-built little house. It's not really big enough, but it's bigger than the shack that they're in. He takes us and shows us, this is the only thing I know of that might be for rent, and I don't have any idea, and I think it would be really expensive, and the construction's not even finished. And so we just started asking strangers, who owns this? We ended up in a conversation with the owner. He's a guy who spent most of his life in the U.S., in Brooklyn. And he said, here's the deal. I started building that home for my mother-in-law, and she decided she wanted to live somewhere else. And I'm like, mother-in-laws, right? I'm just kidding. I didn't say I'm kidding. Mama Bennett, if you're watching, I'm kidding. I did not say that. Um, he said, and I was going to build this shop, but I decided to open it up down the street. That's why I didn't finish construction. I just want to get rid of it. So through conversations over the last few months with him, he's not really interested in, in renting it to Matthew. He's only interested in selling it because he wants to be done with it. So what I want to introduce to you this morning is I, I just feel a call of God to partner with that little church and help remove the obstacle. I'm not called to move the Dominican. I'm, I'm not called to go live there but I am called to do what I can do to help remove that obstacle. I'm thrilled to introduce this morning Project Gera. Project New Jerusalem is still ongoing. There's, there's still a ton left of that project. But there's, there's a lot of people who are starting to hear about that project and get invested in that project. Nobody knows Matthew. Nobody's heard of Matthew. In this group of five pastors, Matthew, like his whole life story, is still kind of the, the runt of the litter. I don't mean this offensively. I struggle saying this while the camera is going, but that guy from Port-au-Prince who discipled him actually supports him for less money than the other four guys. Because he just thought, I just don't know that he's really going to go kill it. And the dude's baptized 20 people this year and he's running 110, right? Man, I I just want to come alongside this underdog and see if we can help remove this obstacle. And so... Project Gera is going to be in partnership with Calvary Baptist Church in Grand Prairie. 
This project's bigger than we can take on in our own, and so we want to partner together in this. The thing about Calvary Baptist in Grand Prairie is they're in a building program. <laughs> and so they broke, right? They're in the middle of building a new facility down in South Grand Prairie. And so uh, even in the midst of relocating, God has burdened their hearts to join with us in this project. There's three phases of the project. I want to share them with you real quick. Phase one is $60,000. And here's, here's what that's for. The owner of this, this building and this little house has said, Hey, I'll sell it to you for $90,000. I need 30 up front and you have as long as you need to raise the other 60. He's got 30 in it. <laughs> he wants his money back and he doesn't care about the profit. We have time to raise those funds. So we need to raise $30,000 to put the money down that secures it under contract as we will actually take ownership, even though we haven't paid it off. And then we need another $30,000 to finish the construction. That's what the upfront $60,000 of phase one is the down money that secures ownership and it completes the construction of both the house so that Matthew and his family have a place to stay and construction of the church. Finish the bathrooms, put security windows in and doors, finish the floor. And then when phase one is done, we will need to raise the $60,000 to pay the rest of the building off. But by the time that's done, we're going to need to build a bigger sanctuary on the top floor. It's built for a second floor. It's a flat roof. That's how everything is built there. And so what we'd love to do, phase three, for 30 grand, we can build a bigger sanctuary on top of that and build a second floor to the little house so that he can have more space for his family. That's phases one through three. Today I'm telling you, obstacle number one that we're trying to remove is a $60,000 commitment. And I just feel impressed of the Lord to raise that before the end of the year. Now, if you're sitting there thinking, hey, Doug, I look at the weekly report. I know that our tithes and offerings are below budget and our missions giving is below budget. Don't you care that your salary is being covered first? No. I believe God wants us to do this. And if I didn't believe that this is what God wanted us to do, let me tell you what happened. Pastor Brian Loveless and I had lunch with a friend and we told him about this $60,000 phase one. Told him, hey, our church is really, $60,000 is a big chunk of change for churches our size. And he said, well, I'll tell you what, how about I just give you a check today for $30,000. So today, phase one is already halfway done. Right? <laughs> so we're together, our two congregations are, are committing to try to raise between now and the end of the year another $30,000. I'm hoping and praying that we're going to raise 20. And Calvary only has to come up with 10 while they're in the middle of their building program. That, that's my hope and prayer. And so we're casting that vision today, asking you to begin to pray about would you grab the other end of that barrier that's in the middle of the road and help me move it into the grass <laughs> so we can get this congregation into a permanent space? Here's the other part of that, that announcement as well. I really want you to come and meet Matthew and his wife and his kids. And so I'm excited to announce uh, Mission Dominican 2023, June 1 through the 6th. We're going to go serve in the village of Guerra. 
We're also going to get to see John and Lynn Cunningham, Las Palmas Christian School. Those of you who've been supporting them uh, are familiar with their ministry as well. We're going to get to visit New Jerusalem. um, And then we're going to be able to worship on a Sunday morning with Matthew and his church family, God willing, in their new space. Right? Um, We're still getting some final details. We don't have a dollar uh, figure yet. But it looks like it's going to be less than $2,000. Those of you who've been to Africa with us before, you're like, $3,500? No, we think it's going to be less than two grand, even with flights being up right now. Um, we're finalizing that over the next couple of days. But we will have a meeting on September the 25th where we're going to share that information together after church because um, we'd love for you to come with us. Those of you who are keeping a finger on the pulse of our mission trips, you might be thinking, well, what about our students? We were supposed to have gone to Tanzania. In 2020, we haven't taken that trip. Uh, we, fa- we fundraised a bunch for that trip, and then, of course, it got canceled, and we just had not felt comfortable about taking a group of minors to Africa yet with the way things are in the world. And here's the deal. We still don't feel comfortable with that. So instead, we, we feel peace about a different plan. I'm excited to announce to you Mission Guatemala 2023 for Temple Student Ministry. Again, that trip's going to be... Uh, it looks less than $2,000 per student, um, and a bunch of students have already done a lot of fundraising for that. So it's an exciting thing. Uh, we're going to go down over spring break and, and get to go to Guatemala. I've been multiple times since the pandemic began. I feel comfortable taking our students there. Next week at the parent-student meeting, we'll discuss more details of this. So uh, next Sunday after church, we'll give some more details for this trip. Here's why these trips are important, and then I'm done. You know what I believe one of the big obstacles is for people coming to God? The lie of the American dream. I think there's a lot of Jesus followers who who were were so busy leveraging our stuff for self that it's literally putting a barrier in the way of people coming to faith in Jesus. And man, if you can go see missions work for what it is with your own eyeballs it just puts such clarity and perspective it won't remove that obstacle it might light it on fire and put some some dynamite on it and just blow it to smithereens because i believe we're all invited in the story of grace to be in the business of removing obstacles for those who are turning to god